This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Actor Cal Penn is best known around Hollywood for his role in the Harold and Kumar films and for a two-year stint in Washington working for President Barack Obama. Now, Cal is adding author to his list of accomplishments. His new memoir, released today, called You Can't Be Serious, is a series of funny, awkward, and inspiring stories about his life, told only the way that he could. He's the grandson of Gandhian freedom fighters, the son of immigrant parents who came to America with very little. And according to a chapter in the book, Cal is living the dream. And for Cal, the timing of his memoir couldn't be better. Well, I'm excited to share all of my stories with people now, especially because I wanted to write a book that felt like the reader was just having a beer with me and sharing stories that I never got to learn about when I was 20 years old. So in some ways, it's for the 20-year-old version of me, but it's also for anybody who has ever been told that that thing that they wanted to do is a little too crazy. You know, maybe it's a class you want to take. Maybe it's a career shift. There are all these conversations about, hey, I have this other passion that I've never really explored. Mm-hmm. A lot of times our communities say, no, 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 that's crazy. Well, coming out of the last two years, obviously, a lot of us have tapped into that quote unquote crazy um, and we're exploring it a lot more. So I'm especially excited that the book's coming out around this time. How long had you been working on it? <laughs> uh, off and on, I would say for about four and a half years. Okay. The, the types of stories that I put in there, first and foremost, I just wanted people to laugh. And some of the stories that I tell about, you know, getting bullied in middle school or some of my early auditions in Hollywood, which by 2021 standards are phenomenally racist, when you put them on paper, the funny ways in which I'm used to telling that story over a beer would kind of manifest itself in a really dark first draft. And I realized there were still things that I was maybe working through that I wanted to get better at on the page before actually sending it to my editor. So it was a really eye-opening experience for me. I'm used to writing fiction. You know, I'm used to writing screenplays. Right. It was the first time I really tapped into the autobiographical short stories. Well, Cal, let's get right to chapter 18 and not beat around the bush here, because among the many stories that you share, you write about your love life, right? I do, yeah. And it's funny, my partner Josh and I met when I was taking that sabbatical in D.C. Ah. And one of the funniest things to friends of ours, or friends of mine especially, is we really connected over a national car race. And when you're in the Obama White House, to any White House staffer, to be fair, Sundays are really your only days off, or at least for junior staffers like me. So, you know, meeting this guy at a bar the previous week and saying, well, you know, what, why don't you just come over on Sunday and we'll grab drinks and watch TV? This guy comes over with an 18 pack of Coors Light and changes my television from uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, because I'm a romantic, to NASCAR. <laughs> Now, I grew up outside of New York City and didn't know anything about NASCAR. And I thought, is this guy for real? He's about to leave 40 minutes later with 16 beers. This just isn't going to work out. <laughs> um, and, you know, then we, we actually started this really interesting conversation about how families 
uh, particularly families in the Midwest or the South, would gather together and watch races or go on camping trips to races. And that resonated with me because as the son of immigrants, we didn't grow up with a whole lot of money. And some of our greatest family vacations were camping. We'd pack a tent in the car, drive up to Pennsylvania or upstate New York and spend some time together. And it was a really interesting parallel for two people who grew up in such completely different ways in different places in the country. And right. so it's one of my favorite chapters in the book because it's, A, I just think it's really funny. and ridiculous. It's very funny. It's very reminiscent of many of us who meet our significant others in ways that we would never have expected. I loved it. I burst out when you were first learning about NASCAR, when you first started dating Josh, and you talked about the dead guy getting out of the car. <laughs> and so, I just thought that that was hilarious, because obviously he's not dead, but just the way that you wrote it was so funny. The whole book, I, tr- I really try to share my weird brain in, in ways that hopefully <laughs> take you on the journey with me, and that's a great example of it. I mean, this I had never watched a race before. This car explodes into flames, and I thought there's no way that this driver has made it, and I was really concerned for his family and his team, and it was I thought I was watching this awful, tragic thing, and then all of a sudden, he just pulls himself out out of the wreckage and I just like basically stood up and slow clapped. <laughs> yeah. Well, you waited 11 years to talk about this relationship, Kyle. Was it easier for you to be this transparent about it by writing it down in a book? I appreciate that question. You know, for me, I obviously have a career in the in the public eye and Josh doesn't. And so when we met, I had discovered my own sexuality relatively late in life. And I'm so happy that I did when I did. There's obviously never a timeline for anything like that with folks. But he's a very private person and very similar to my parents, who also sort of shun the spotlight. I thought, you know, I, I want to respect that always. And so when the idea for this memoir came about, I obviously the first three people I called were Josh and my parents. And I said, hey. There's some great stories and some wonderful experiences that we've all shared that I would love to put in in a memoir. And I think, you know, it might resonate with some people, but also it's just important to me to share a lot of that. How do you feel about it? Right. And all three of them were like, oh, we don't love attention. And I said, I think there's a way to share really the stories in the right way, which, you know, my parents' experiences, especially my dad, of moving to America with $12 in his pocket and having the chance to pursue higher education because of that post-1965 Immigration Act, right? And Josh and I experiencing this falling in love through something as random as NASCAR, which we're now both, you know, he was a longtime fan and I am. It was that kind of a thing that I said, I know that your fear is the fear that you have when you come to a premiere with me or you meet my work friends uh, and you just want to make sure that you're not in the way. Like, you know, when they've come to premieres, they yeah. all three of them and my brother, too. To they be step fair, aside. A deeply private person. Yeah, they get out of the car and go through a side entrance, grab the popcorn and drinks. And they're like, you can go do as many interviews as you want. But none of us want to stand with you on the red carpet. <laughs> so I really just for the last 11 years, have felt so lucky, but but also just really wanted to be protective and respectful of their preferences, too. Let's talk about your professional life. Do you remember when you were bitten by the acting bug? I do, very specifically, actually. It was early in eighth grade. I was 13, 14 years old, and two things happened around the same time that year. First was that um, I played the Tin Man in The Wiz. You're welcome. <laughs> and, and, you know, I sang Slide Some Oil to Me, and there, there was one particular day where, before the play went up, the director said, hey, hey guys, good news, drama club nerds. 
you're doing three scenes from the play for the whole school. And we were horrified because we thought, you know, it's one thing to be a drama nerd and your parents come see the play, but it's quite another to be put through the havoc of having a whole school see you do this thing that they've been making fun of you for doing. You know, it's no secret that drama kids everywhere get sort of bullied and made fun of for what they love, especially by soccer players. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we begrudgingly did this. And in the school assembly, I don't know why I said it, but, you know, the line for the Tin Man after he gets his heart is all you fine ladies out there watch out and for some reason i was in what i know now as an actor is called the zone and you might hear actors talking about being in the zone i said the line all you fine ladies out there and then i did a pelvic thrust before i said watch out (laughs) and the crowd went wild the eighth grade girls started screaming the bus ride on the way home all these soccer players who used to make fun of us said hey man that was actually really funny i had no idea and i thought did, did did we just come together off of a joke that I just made in the zone? There's a magic to this that I love. Ah. And shortly thereafter, also saw Mira Nair's film, Mississippi Masala, with Denzel Washington and Saritha Chaudhry. That was the first time I saw brown people on screen who weren't cartoon characters or, you know, uh, weren't stereotypical. They were really flushed out, flawed characters. And those two experiences happening together made me think, That's awesome. there's a magic to this that I really can't shake. Your acting career, it actually took off after Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. But you've said in the past that you struggled to find a job after that breakthrough role. And even Jamba Juice wouldn't hire you. (laughs) A lot of people don't realize this. It's such a funny thing. You know, when you're crafting your career as an actor, and I think this is true for any actor, to be fair, but I think it's especially true for performers of color, where there's this weird place where you might be recognizable for a movie or two. And to be sure, those are great paychecks that might pay your rent for three or four months. And, And by every metric that most actors use, if you're putting a roof over your head by your acting, I mean, that's the goal, right? The goal is to perform and share your art and have a roof over your head. The thing that nobody tells you, and which is what I experienced, was, all right, you did this Harold and Kumar movie. People have watched it. The money runs out four or five months later, and I just think to myself very naively, well, I'll become a production assistant or a messenger or work at John's Juice or Starbucks again. And nobody will hire you because, A, they know that you could easily leave for another acting mm-hmm. job if and when you get one. But, B, the service professions, they said – Well, you're just not going to be very efficient because if somebody's seen your movies, you're going to be really slow at making their coffee drink. And I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) I can't even get a job at the places where like the flexibility of most actors having those jobs. So it was a I wish they would teach you that in film school, because that was one thing that, you know, you just got to navigate a little bit. So, Cal, you're a movie star. Right. And in 2009, you did something that might seem unusual to some people. You took a job working in the White House for the Obama administration. What was that learning curve like? I did. It was an interesting learning curve. You know, I know in retrospect, it's sort of like, whoa, he left a TV show and worked in politics. At the time, it was a little more nuanced than that in the sense that, um, you know, the screenwriters in L.A. went on strike right before the Iowa caucuses in late 07. And it just so happened that Olivia Wilde, who was on the show house with me, she knocked on my door one day and she said, hey, I've got a plus one to a Barack Obama event. And this was, you know, when he was 30 points down in the polls coming out of that summer and nobody could pronounce his name anywhere else in the country. And I said, yeah, I read that guy's book. Uh, No, I'm good. I don't want to come to an event with you. (laughs) And she really hammered it over and over again. I, I said, all right, I guess it's some open bar event that this guy's speaking at. I'll come. 
And I thought that it would be really a good idea to read up on his campaign website. And I saw that he had all this information about investing in ethanol. And I also remembered that I had read this article in Foreign Affairs. Uh, This shows you how much of a nerd I am, right? So the Council on Foreign Relations publishes Foreign Affairs. I think it's every two months. They had recently had an article about climate change and how when you fund corn-based ethanol, it drives up the price of corn uh, Mm -hmm. as food for folks in developing countries. And so there's a big downside to that. So I thought, all right, in this room full of actors that I guess Obama's going to be in, I'm going to ask a really smart question about ethanol. Uh, (laughs) And so Obama's making the rounds. He's very gracious. He's talking about arts and culture with everybody. And he comes over to where Olivia and I are standing. And I said, Senator, I actually have a question for you about climate change. And he goes, oh, okay. And I said, you know, I read your plan. You're really heavily heavily investing in corn-based ethanol. But isn't that just going to drive the price of corn up in developing countries? And he looks at me and he goes, uh, oh, yeah, I read that article in Foreign Affairs, too. I mean, you know, my plan invests in corn-based ethanol as a bridge to cellulosic ethanol so that you can make fuel from grass clippings and leaves one day and gives me this smirk. And I was just like, oh, oh." nice. I just got schooled (laughs) by Obama. By Obama. And there were several experiences <laughs> like that that just made me think this guy kind of walks the walk in rooms where there are no journalists, there are no TV cameras. And it was really refreshing. And I thought if I can volunteer, and I did go with Olivia and, and a few other folks a few weekends later to Des Moines to volunteer and ended up staying for the next month and a half, two months until the caucuses, uh, which, you know, he surprisingly won and then 26 other states and had the chance to serve in the administration. So that's the part of the story that I, I share in more detail in the book. But I do so because I know the perception is sort of like, did you just throw your acting career away to become a politician? I'm like, no, it was a two-year sabbatical, and I loved it so much. And so many other people do that in their own lives, and I I was excited to share that. Well, I wonder how you think the political and the acting worlds compare. Um, You know, I, I, I really tried to make it a point to be fully in each world when I was. And if anything, I I learned a little more coming back from working in DC to going back to my first love, which is acting in the sense that I worked in the Office of Public Engagement. So I worked on youth outreach, uh, had the chance to work on big teams around Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal and, and student loans and the Affordable Care Act and a whole bunch of other issues. And all of the outreach folks were told by the communications team, don't be funny. Don't stray from the talking points. You know, the comms team gives you talking points for a reason. And so I found myself actually having to go against my instinct as a public speaker or as a performer. And I got to tell you, it was such a challenge because here I am talking to college students and college-aged individuals who really want somebody to break down these talking points in a way that's palatable. Mm -hmm. And I was being told, no, just read, wrote from the sheet. So by the time I was done with my two years at the White House, my fear was actually, do I still got it as an actor? Can I jump back in and still be funny? And I... My first job after the White House was on How I Met Your Mother, and I remember asking Pam Fryman, who, who was the director of, of the season that I did, you know, I said, Pam, we only did two takes of this. I don't think I was funny enough, and I was so in my head about it. And she pulled me aside one day and said, i got to be honest with you, we've been on the air for eight years, and we've won Emmys for a reason. I promise I'll tell you if you're not funny. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And it was the biggest compliment for an insecure actor. So if anything, it was actually coming back to acting. I had first this wild insecurity, but then also just the idea of perspective and patience since things in D.C. tend to move a lot slower than they do in, in Hollywood. Well, you're also a longtime activist. What social issues would you say are top of mind for you right now? 
You know, you mentioned in the wonderful intro, which I'm, I'm appreciative of, my grandparents, and they marched with Gandhi, you know, when they were younger and were very active in the Indian independence movement. And those were the stories that I heard when I was a little kid. And, and literally, like, you know, seven years old, I'm at the dinner table in New Jersey. Grandma and grandpa are visiting for a few months from India. And the stories that any grandparent tells you to coerce you into eating your carrots and, and broccoli, like my grandparents would tell stories about being jailed, you know, by the British and beaten while they were going on marches. And I, you know, at age seven, you just kind of roll your eyes and go there. Grandma goes with another Gandhi story. Uh, but when you're older, and, and for me, I remember this vividly, it was sixth grade and then after when Gandhi starts showing up in the context of Dr. King and nonviolent civil disobedience. And you realize, wow, the whole framework of our own American civil rights movement is rooted in this amazing philosophy that King and, and Gandhi shared. So cut to me as an adult, and I, I realized, you know, we, we never grew up in a political household. It was always a question of you should always do the right thing. You should make your voice heard. You should uh, show up for people, you know, in solidarity when, when you have the opportunity. Uh, I guess by today's wording, it was just sort of like the 1980s version of check your privilege always. And I'm really appreciative of that because I think it helped me. I, I always just sort of look at things through uh, more of a, Moralistic is the wrong word, but certainly a, a secular do the right thing, show up for folks yeah. kind of a mindset. And that's sort of how I feel today. Before I let you go, Kyle, can you tell us what TV and film projects you're working on next? Yes. Well, first of all, I, I should let folks know on Saturday I'm going to be in Chicago and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing everybody at the Chicago Humanities Festival. So uh, if you want to come through, please grab tickets. And after that, I mean, I, I joke, <laughs> I joke that if my book does well in the next couple of weeks and if people like it, I would love to sell the movie rights and then hire Dev Patel to play me because yes. now it's old for the first half of the book. <laughs> uh, but besides that, I'm producing a, a really sweet, funny movie for Comedy Central starring these two wonderful women. Uh, Serena and Mel, it's called Hot Mess Holiday. It's their first Diwali movie that Comedy Central is doing that comes out in December. Um, and then a couple of horror films that I'm working on. I'll be looking out for those. That is actor and author Cal Penn. His new memoir called You Can't Be Serious is out right now wherever books are sold. Cal, such a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for today's Reset. For more of our interviews with celebrities like Cal Penn, which was so much fun, subscribe to this podcast. And please give us a rating. It helps other listeners find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the fall weather, and we'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.